Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody. Today is Tuesday, October 6, 2020. It's the fourth quarter of 2020. Hope everyone's doing okay and staying safe. Today, we've got two very interesting stories on the mean lowdown, the podcast produced by Deltwire Municipals. We've got a story about Columbia Pulp LLC, which is a struggling Washington state-based straw recycling plant. They need at least 80 million in fresh capital and two years before it can start to pay back bondholders, according to a consultant report. Uh, Chicago-based reporter Kaylin Devil will discuss that situation. And our second story will be talked about by our reporter in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Eva Lorenz. She spoke to Puerto Rico gubernatorial candidate Pedro Pelusi of the New Progressive Party. And he said he will personally deal with all matters related to Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. And he did not dismiss the possibility of restarting from scratch the pending plans of adjustment for both the Commonwealth and the Puerto Rico Elective Power Authority, better known as PREPA. All right, good morning. Let's welcome back to the show from, I, I'm assuming, sunny San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, Eva Lorenz, welcome. Thank you very much and glad to be here. All right, always a pleasure to have you back on the show. So I know this is always, it's always a busy time in, on the island. And like us in the US, we have a big election next month. And you recently talked to one of the gubernatorial candidates, Pedro Perlusi. And before, yes. I, and before I ask you the first question about the story, um, I know he's got a, people in the Commonwealth and obviously in the U.S. as well, and U.S. Congress know that he has a long history. He was resident commissioner a long time ago, uh, and then he's got this long background. So tell us his actual background and how he, I believe he did work for the FOMB, correct? The Financial yeah, Oversight Management Board? Well, he uh, he worked for the law firm that it's one of the law firms working, leading law firms working for the FOMB, and he was an advisor to the FOMB. Uh, as a matter of fact, if, if you look at the receipts that uh, that sometimes they put out, different law firms put out, uh, the timesheets and everything, you will find his name uh, in in um, the local law firm Onili Borges, uh, which is one of the leading law firms that is working on the um, uh, Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. Uh, he was a former Secretary of Justice back in the 1990s. Uh, he worked as resident commissioner from 2009 to 2017. Um, uh, he has been active in the, of course, in the private sector, and I think he's best known for the fact that when uh, Ricardo Rosselló resigned as governor, uh, he appointed Pierluisi as a secretary of state. Pierluisi was confirmed by one of the chambers, but not the other. So when right. Rosselló resigned, uh, Pierluisi took over. As he just went ahead and took over as governor. And of course, this was challenged in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court pretty much unanimously said that he was not, he could not take over. So he was governor for like maybe two or three days at the most. <laughs> and um, 
And uh, after that, it was Wanda Vasquez who became governor. Uh, Wanda Vasquez decided after initially saying she did not, she was not interested in politics, she decided to run for governor and she faced Pierluisi, who had the support of his own party to become the next gubernatorial candidate. Uh, right now, Pierluisi defeated her. So right now, and right now he is ahead in the polls, in the, the latest polls show that he is um, pretty much ahead. So, uh, so I would, I, I expect him I'm based on, I have talked to people. When you talk to people, uh, you will see that he has a lot of support. So I, at least I expect him to win. So Right, yeah. I mean, like you said, you, you mentioned that he's leading in the polls and mm -hmm. that whole thing last year with him being briefly governor. So it looks like the way it's going, he might get his wish. He might actually become governor. I, I, would, I, would, be, I would be surprised if he doesn't win. But of course... It, this could also go the other way because even though he's ahead in the polls, the difference between his himself and the, his next contender, which is a Popular Democratic Party candidate, Charlie Delgado, uh, the difference is not much. You know, there is that 3% usually in the polls where it can go either way. So it's it's more or less within that 3%. So... So it so it could go the other way, but you never know. But I think he, it, personally, I think he he's gonna win. Right. All right. So let's now let's talk about your your story uh, because you spoke to um, Pere Lucy, and he said that uh, he would redo the restructuring deals of both. I believe Prepa, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, uh -huh. and the common and, and the Commonwealth. Why why did he say that? Well, first of all, I don't know if you know that the candidates have not really talked much about the bankruptcy. They have talked mm -hmm. about the economy, but not the, the bankrupt, what, what they will do with the bankruptcy. And I wanted to talk to Pierre Luisi because he actually, he was an advisor to Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. So I wanted to see his opinion. That is the reason why I interview him specifically about this uh, topic. The reason he, he did not dismiss the possibility of of repealing or starting the Commonwealth debt deal and the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's debt, debt deal from scratch, mainly because he says Puerto Rico's economic situation has changed a lot as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. And... Um, uh, he pretty much believes that maybe this that that we need to lower the amount of money that uh, Puerto Rico has to pay to its creditors. That has to be lower, and he wants to lower the annual debt payments. In the past, Pierre Luisi, I don't know if you know this, but Pierre Luisi, and we did write about this. Pierre Luisi was one of the people who said that Puerto Rico could pay 1.5 billion a year in debt. A service for the Commonwealth. He he believed it. He believed it was possible that that was an affordable number. But now it appears that that he doesn't believe that, and he is, believes that um, the, these both deals should be done all over again, and let's start them from scratch uh, in order to get a more sustainable uh, debt payments. Right now. His remarks that uh, he told you, why are they, to our readers, why are they so important? 
Well, this is important because he not only worked uh, for the FOMB, but uh, for the FOMB indirectly because he worked for one of the law firms and advised the FOMB, but he's, he's ahead in the polls. There's a very good chance that he will win this election. And also because he has said that he's not going to delegate his responsibility before the Financial Oversight Board to somebody else that he is, will personally be in the FOMB meetings as the governor's delegate um, and be there to discuss uh, the debt restructuring. So he's, he's the only candidate who has said that. Uh, also, he's the only candidate, in my opinion, that knows is knowledgeable about bankruptcy law Right. Uh, that's uh, because he has work in it and, and, and it's knowledgeable. Although the uh, Charlie Delgado is not a lawyer, nor and, uh, the, the only other person who are lawyers are the PEEP candidate, Juan Del Mao, and the um, Victory National Movement uh, candidate, Alexandra Lugaro. They are lawyers, but they have no experience in bankruptcy. Pierre Luisi does. So, uh, as uh, and, and lobbying, and he has had he has had that experience. So, uh, when you hear him say things like this, it's it's important to note them. Very interesting. And just an aside, I think there's I don't know if there's a pattern here. I think if it seems like in Puerto Rico, if you're resident commissioner, sometimes you end up being governor. Uh, 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 yes, there is that pattern. <laughs> there is that pattern. But let's see what happens with Pierluisi because. While he is right now ahead of the polls, he also uh, he comes from a political party that I ha that has been very much criticized because of its handling of the hurricane. The, mm -hmm. the after after when Hurricane Maria and and Irma hit the island, uh, there was a lot of criticism as to the way uh, uh, Rosselló handled the emergency and delays in giving aid to people, and and of course all of the situation that took place that caused Rosselló to resign. So so he's dragging all of this uh, as 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 a candidate. So, so it might be that a lot of the MPP people, uh, supporters, might not go out and vote after all because of because they're disillusioned. That has happened in the past. So I wouldn't be surprised if it happens here. Right. All right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very important time in the U.S. and the territory. So I know you'll keep uh, us informed what's going on. Ava, thank you so much for your time today. Stay safe and be well. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, let's welcome back to the show from Wendy, and I believe it's getting chilly, Chicago, Illinois, Kaylin Devitt. Good morning. How are you, Young? Good morning. How are you? I know you and I were speaking offline earlier, and, you know, as they say, be careful what you wish for. You were like, I've been on the podcast in a while, and I'm like, well, be careful what you wish. <laughs> so. And here I am. No, I'm always happy to be here. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. So let's talk about it. And I think, and you wrote a very interesting story, um, which caused me to create the, uh, the, the title for our podcast, Pulp Fiction. So... Uh, last week, you wrote about a struggling recycling plant in uh, Washington State, and the company, which is called Columbia Pulp, has already defaulted on its bond payments. And 
And Bonhoeffer over the summer hired a consultant to help them figure out their next best move. Tell us a little bit about Columbia Pulp, what they do, and what is this project? Well, Columbia Pulp, like you said, it's in Washington State, and it builds itself as North America's first tree-free market pulp Tree-free, okay. Tree-free, I know. And so what they do is they use wheat farmers' straw, you know, that's left over from the wheat in, in Washington in this area. It's a huge agricultural area, and they, they grow a lot of wheat. And then they have the straw left over. And usually um, in the past, they've had a couple methods of getting of getting rid of it, but one method is burning, which is, you know, kind of a key source of pollution and is a big problem. So this plant takes that straw and they use it to create pulp for paper products. And they also create um, a biopolymer for that they use for a variety of industrial uses. That's like another product that the waste straw creates. I mean, it's a very technical process. You know, I'm I'm thinking about asking Doubtwire for a site visit to see if I can go there, <laughs> like the bondholders I'm sure get, because it's the type of thing where it's like you can't un really understand it, I think, unless you see it there. But anyway, that's what they do, and they're kind of a first of its kind, and um, and so like I said, they're they're also they're not only addressing kind of this pollution issue, but they're also talking about creating a new revenue stream from the farmers because they'd be buying it from them. And it's new jobs for this area that's gone through some hardship. And so there, you know, it's really kind of this highly promoted um, uh, a first of its kind recycling project. So they started borrowing for the project in 2017 and 2018. They borrowed almost $200 million for mm. it in bonds. And then they realized like within a year that they needed more money to complete construction. So then they borrowed some more money in 2019. So I see. Wow. It sounds very technical. Well, without going too much into the woods, I hear crickets now, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Caitlin, walk us through the, the, walk us through the timeline of their troubles. Well, like I said, so they borrowed more money in 2019. Then they finally, they were behind schedule and over, you know, gone over budget. And then they finally opened in October of 2019. They were not anywhere near full capacity, but they were kind of running. And then after five months, they had to close in March. And that was because of COVID. So, um, so they were already, you know, facing these struggles. In June, they, they warned bondholders that they didn't think they were going to make the July 1st payment and they asked him for forbearance uh, to sign a forbearance agreement that was like I think through 2026 and there were some other um, there were some other provisions in there and they asked for some more money I think it was like 46 million that they said they were going to need and then in July the bond trustee used the debt service reserve fund to make the bond payment so the bond payment has been made but you know it's a technical default and then the bond trustee directed by the bondholders also hired a consultant to analyze the facility that's Nexus PMG that hired them to analyze the facility and kind of come back with their own recommendations for the bondholders. The trustee tapped the debt, debt service again in August for some operating money and also September to pay the consultants. And in early September, the consultants uh, unveiled their report. It was like an 84 page, very technical report. And they made a presentation to bondholders. And basically what they said, a couple things, but so not to go into the woods, but so they said that the facility <laughs> would need $83 million. That's what they estimated. 
um, almost all of it for capital expenditures and about 20 million for operating. Um, so they need 83 million in new money and about two years to get to the point where they could start to generate enough cash flow to begin to pay back bondholders. And then they, you know, kind of highlighted these different equipment, technical and bottleneck issues. And they recommended maybe moving, you know, maybe moving forward, they said with quote unquote detailed planning to ensure there's a path forward before bondholders make a final decision. So I, I think that might mean, you know, have that the facilities start to operate again at low capacity to help to figure out if they can address some of those issues and and then get to the point. I think their target has always been like 400 tons a day is a commercial production target. Mm, I see. All right. Now, I know in the story you wrote about and in quite in detail about their recent trades. Can you talk about that? Because it seemed like at one point I was reading it, I thought I thought I was watching like stock trades, like a couple hours later, a buyer and a seller, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, which is unusual. I mean, right. these... These deals, like um, like a lot of these project finance deals in high yield and muni world, are generally really illiquid. Mm -hmm. And that's true for these two. They don't trade that much, but we did see a little flurry of trading in early September. This was actually right, um, I think it might have been that same day or right around the time that the consultant presented the report to the bondholders. Um, so we saw, so the the we saw a big or, you know, depending on your, what you think the bonds should be valued at, you know, which is always hard to establish if they're not very liquid, you can't really, there's no paper trail for marking the bonds. But uh, the, what we saw in December of 2017, for example, they were like at a high of 119. And then in early September, they, they traded for 75. Um, the interesting thing about it, though, was that it sort of seemed like the day before, I think that was maybe the 2nd of September, um, somebody put a bid on the bonds for 33. And so that was out there and then that trade was canceled. And so that was formally not marked at all. And then that same amount of money, which was like one $1.8 million, sold the next day for around 75. And another chunk of money, which I think was 5.7, also sold for around 75. So anyway, it was just kind of a strange little set of trades that happened. And But the ultimate, the end of it is that the bonds are now evaluated at about 75. Right. All right, Caitlin, I got one last question for you. I know this is just one credit, but tell our listeners if what, if anything, does this tell us about the broader mar muni market? Well, it is just one credit. It's a really unique and kind of unusual credit. But um, I think that a lot of people are starting to think about this increasing bifurcation of the market between credits that were weak heading into the pandemic and those that weren't weak. And I mean, that's across the board. Like you could even look at cities like Chicago or Illinois, weak heading into the credit, I mean, into the pandemic are going to have a harder time. So it's definitely a reflection of that. These guys, like I said, were having struggles beforehand and all of this really exacerbated and, and aggravated their problems. And also, so I think we'll start to see that a little bit more. And also, you know, in the project high yield project finance space, that's where a lot of investors expect to start to see um, defaults, rising defaults, struggles, distress. It's sort of a hidden corner of the market. And um, and this, this credit is a little bit indicative of this area that I think a lot of investors are expecting to see at least, you know, where the problems are going to start. Very interesting. Well, I'll tell you one thing. We should not quit our day jobs. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but Caitlin, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Great reporting. Thanks for your time and stay safe out there. Okay. Thank you. You too.
All right, bye. Bye. And that's our show for today. Many thanks to our reporters, Ava Lorenz in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Kaylin David in Chicago, Illinois, and our producer, Christian Ayala, for making us sound good. But again, as always, our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in, hopefully week after week, to the latest on distressed debt on Mean Lowdown. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and take care out there. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mean Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.